once said that God moves in mysterious ways, which largely explains why God sometimes moves us in what we may feel are strange and mysterious ways. For although the Apostle Paul was clearly a traveling man, rarely did he make those decisions willingly. I mean, we have in our mind the idea that he was given an itinerary when he got saved, and he was simply working through that itinerary. But if you study it more closely, you begin to realize there was a randomness, at least from a human perspective, to a lot of things that he did, places where he went. And they were often places that he wouldn't have naturally chosen for himself. I often think about my wife and I and our family ending up here in Spokane, which, you know, prior to coming to Spokane, we had moved 17 times. That's one of the blessings of being in ministry. And so when we came to Spokane, it was like, how long will we be here? And I got here and no other church wanted me, so we stayed. But the whole point is that you know, I hadn't anticipated Spokane. I, it wasn't like we, it was on our list of places to be. And I remember when I started getting these calls repeatedly asking me if I'd consider coming to Spokane, I kept on telling him, I'm pretty sure that's not God's will. It was shortly after that I realized I'm not a prophet. But the problem was that even when we came here to visit, my wife said, you at least need to go just out of courtesy because they keep on asking. And so I said, okay, you fly me up, I'll, I'll talk with you. And it's interesting. We got here in the evening, sat down with these people from the church. And we had this wonderful conversation and they were nice people and I liked them. And I, as we were going to bed that night, I learned, leaned over my wife and I said, you know what makes me feel really bad is tomorrow I'm gonna have to tell them that we're just not called to be here. By noon the next day, we looked at each other and said, we're supposed to move here. Oh, no. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was like, move to Spoware? <laughs> um, it, it was not something that was on the agenda in any way, shape, or form, but I think that it became very clear to us within a relatively short period of time that this was exactly where God wanted us to be. And I don't know how much longer we're going to be here. It's only been 38 years, but you know, if I'm a betting man, it's, it's probably gonna be longer than you want. But, but one of the things we find is on a, on a few occasions as Paul would go to a particular place, he would have to leave much sooner than he had anticipated or even planned. I call them strategic retreats because even though he was not only an apostle and a miracle worker and a teacher and a prophet and a pastor, he was also an escape artist. He made several timely mistakes, seven altogether that I could count, that he had fled from Damascus after his conversion, that he had to flee from Jerusalem after he returned as a new believer. He had to flee from Pisidian Antioch and from Lystra and Thessalonica, and now he has to take off from Berea. And yet he has one more escape coming later on, the last time he goes to Jerusalem, where again he has to leave because his life, as always, was in danger. This is why we find it's interesting that his movement was always for the same reasons. The Jews were determined to silence him, even if that meant killing him. So even though in our understanding, most people think that the primary persecutors of the early church were the Romans, in fact, the primary persecutors were the Jews. The Romans and the Greeks early on cared little about what people believed in terms of their religious uh, concepts. But what they, the Jews found it central and threatening to the very foundation of how they defined a man's relationship with God. So what Paul did is he fled, not because he was afraid or feared of death, but because as he told the Philippians, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain, and yet sometimes it was more necessary for him to leave." Now, at lest again we think he's guilty of cowardice, we have to remember that he was doing exactly what Jesus said. He said, he was just, he, he said, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. So there's a concept that many people have that if you begin to face opposition and hardships, you should just simply grin and bear it. I remember as a young Christian, I was living in Denver, Colorado, and I would go to the parks at night to share with people who were hanging out. And you know, having been one of them, I realized that people who hang out in parks at night are probably not the safest people to be around. But, you know, I didn't think much about that. I was willing to die for Christ. And I remember I came up to one gentleman and I said, has anybody ever talked to you about Jesus Christ? And he said, yes, I don't want to hear about it. 
I said, well, have you ever asked Christ? And he says, yes, and I'm not a Christian anymore, so go away. I said, well, you know, why don't you just give me a chance to explain to you? He says, listen, if you don't get out of my face, I'm going to punch you out. And he looked serious and bigger. And so what I did, being a man of great faith, I backed away six feet away, and then I said, you need to give your life to Jesus, and then I left. <laughs> because I couldn't see the value. Maybe I could have witnessed the dentist or the plastic surgeon as he rebuilt my face, but the whole point was I didn't see that there was any value in continually pushing the point to someone who didn't want to hear it. And I was greatly comforted when I read this Pathy and Matthew when he said, you know, when they mistreat you, just get up and move on to the next place. That we don't cast our pearls before swine. So that if somebody doesn't want to hear the gospel, it's really kind of disrespectful and fruitless in many ways to keep on pushing it. Because if you're going to be persecuted, make sure that you're not being persecuted for being obnoxious or a jerk. There's no glory in that. There's no reward in that. We, when we suffer, it's because we have no option. We have no other path of escape. But if there is a path of escape, as with Paul, he took those paths. And again, it was not for fear of himself that caused him to flee, but it was fear of what might overtake the church if he stayed there. In a sense, Paul was a lightning rod for trouble as well as for good. That there were those who were hungry and thirsting and wanted to hear what he said, and there are others who hated what he was saying and wanted to silence him. And I would just simply say to you that if you ever become really committed to being a voice box for God in your world, you'll find you'll get the same reaction. Paul put it very simply to Romans. He said, the, the carnal man has always persecuted the spiritual man. Light hates darkness. And so as, uh, or excuse me, darkness hates light. That's kind of backwards, wasn't it? You didn't even say anything. Anyway, and that's just a, a dynamic that we have to accept is built into what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, they, they hated me and therefore they will hate you. And that's something that we need to realize. But the other thing is we also need to examine, am I giving them any reason to hate me? And that's the real critical challenge because Paul, uh, Peter put it very simply in his first letter. He says, if you suffer for doing the right thing, then you have glory and reward from God. But if you suffer because of bad behavior, you're only getting what you deserve and you need to quit whining, shut up, and endure it. That's exactly how Peter wrote it. So when persecution made it impossible to minister effectively, Paul went on to another his really his peripatetic or ever-moving lifestyle was not by choice, but it was rather by expediency. And it appears that the decision to send Paul to Berea was really intended to find a safe place for him to get away from that persecution. Uh, the Roman writer Cicero, who's a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, by the way, uh, described Berea as being off the beaten path. And what he meant by that is that Paul had been traveling down what's called the Ignatian Way. It's a major Roman highway that was built from the eastern part of the world all the way across to the, to the Aegean Sea and, uh, and to the Ionian Ocean. And then from boat, it continued on the other side into Italy to Rome. This was the really major interstate that went east-west in the Roman Empire. And to get to Berea, you had to go about 20 miles off that road. So he went 30 miles south down the Ignatian Way and then 20 miles up into the foothills to find the town of Berea, a place that was, as he said, well off the beaten path. It probably was assumed that his enemies would have a harder time finding him in this out-of-the-way place. But there were snitches everywhere as there are today. And it wasn't long before word reached Thessalonica that Paul was in Berea. And more troubling were the reports that were coming about his presence there. It says, we read in the text, they received the message with great eagerness, speaking of the Bereans' response. In other words, great eagerness means a, there was a, a tremendous willingness, a readiness, a promptness. They accepted and welcomed what Paul had to say, in other words. And it says, many of the Jews believed, and as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So right away, the church in Berea began to grow overnight into a significant presence in that city. Yet stopping Paul 
was somewhat like trying to stop a virus from escaping a virology lab in Wuhan, China. <clears throat> As if that would ever happen. <laughs> in part because his need to preach the gospel was, as we talked about, something that was really relentlessly incessant. It was something he was relentlessly determined to do. As he said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he says, I am compelled to preach. The word compelled there in the original really means to somebody forcing you into uh, compliance. He said, there's such a, a pressure upon me from the Holy Spirit that not to preach is not something that I can, can do. It just has to come out. It's boiling up inside of me. In fact, he said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I don't think he was implying that God was going to send him to H-E double hockey sticks if he didn't preach the gospel. But what he was saying is that this is almost like trying to contain something explosive on the inside of me that I just simply have to get out of me. I have to say this. Well, he was a lot like Jeremiah when he tried to stay silent because of the consequences of prophesying against the sins of Judah. He said, I tried to keep my mouth shut, but the words burned within me, within my heart. Or Ezekiel, whom the Lord warned, he said, I have made you a watchman, and if the watchman doesn't warn the people, I will hold him responsible. So in a sense, silence was not an option. And that's why it's, it's interesting. We read the text, immediately upon arriving in Berea, they went to the Jewish synagogue. I mean, that just strikes me as so Paul-like. That first thing he does, he doesn't say, well, let's go around and see what are the things to see in Berea. Hey, do you know of any great restaurants? How about a good hotel? No, his first thing was, there's got to be a synagogue here someplace. Let's find it and let's go there. And I want to start talking to people about Jesus. In those days, that was an easier thing because they didn't have the internet yet. And they didn't have TV and they didn't have distractions. People actually went to sit around and talk and have relationships that way. And they liked listening to professional speakers. They were called sophists who were simply trained in the art of speaking eloquently, uh, much like many modern politicians who talk very eloquently and at great length, but don't usually say very much. So it was when one door closed, Paul began looking for the next open door, which was before him in Berea. Because in a sense, he understood that his mission was never over. As I've repeatedly referenced Acts 20, and especially verse 24, where Paul said that his entire life was involved around completing the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And every time I read that, I'm challenged because I have to step back and say, am I still focused on the task that God has put in front of me? Have I still focused on the task? And let me ask you this question. Are you even thinking or focusing at all upon what the task might be that God has given to you? Because many of us sit around and go, well, you know, I'm not called to be a Bible teacher. I'm not called to be a pastor. I'm not called to be in full-time ministry. Uh, you know, I'm not called to be a missionary. Uh, I, I'm called to work at XYZ Incorporated, and that's what I do. And we, we kind of stop right there. We never really ask that question of God. God, is there a task that you have given to me? I was talking to somebody who's a very successful mortgage broker, and, and I, I said to her, I said, you know, what you have to understand that from your perspective, you don't do what you do to make money. You do what you do to help people. And that opens up all sorts of avenues. And I said, that, you have to begin to rethink what you do, not just simply as somebody who's doing a commercial art, but you are doing somebody, something that is designed to aid people in the process of building their lives. That's a task that God puts on you. And, and that's how we can testify to the grace of God in a very practical way because we're interacting with people in a way that helps them with their life, deal with their issues. Relationships begin to build around that and conversations grow out of those relationships. And those conversations more often than not come down to simply talking about why we gave our life to Jesus Christ. One of the biggest mistakes we make when we're sharing our faith is we wanna tell other people why they should believe in Jesus Christ. <laughs> and that's, you know, none of us likes being lectured. Let's put it that way, okay? And it's not hard for them to begin to interpret that as being a, a put down like, I'm, I'm good, but you're not. 
No, what we talk to people is we tell them what Jesus has done for us and why we gave our life to Christ. Do you know it's pretty hard for somebody to argue against that? When you said that, I often, you know, I used to share a lot that before I was saved, I was young, I was stupid, I had absolutely no future whatsoever, and I gave it all up for Jesus. And I find that there's people that I talk to who are going, that's kind of where I'm at. There's an unfulfillment in my life, and it's not like you're trying to criticize where their life or where they're at. It's just simply realizing that I have this void that God filled, and, and uh, if you ask, if you have a void, then I'm sure God will fill that for you. I remember one time I was on a, on a flight and I was sitting next to a, a, a scientist from the Centers for Disease Control before they became a, a political arm of the Democratic Party. And, and we got talking and he was telling me what he did and I thought it was really interesting. And then he said, so what do you do? And I thought to myself, you know, too often I say, well, I'm a pastor and they, the conversation ends, they pick up the Wall Street Journal and start looking for the sports section. And as we are, nobody reads the Wall Street Journal anymore, do you? It doesn't have a sports section. That was a joke. A very good one, too. <laughs> Can you turn on the laugh meter? They're a little behind on that. <laughs> so he says, what are you doing? I said, well, actually, I, I've just been on traveling around the country uh, speaking on marriage and family relationships. He goes, oh, so you're an expert on marriage. I said, no, 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 no. I am a survivor of marriage. <laughs> There's no such thing as an expert. And all of a sudden, the guy started talking to me about his broken relationships. And I thought, what an amazing thing to be able to sit there and have somebody suddenly open because you're safe now. You're not there to put them down. You're there to tell them how down you were and how Jesus lifted you up. That the same God who looked at the chaos of, of the universe and spoke into it and by his word brought order and structure and life and dynamic and goodness into the world is the same God who wants to speak into you by his word to speak into the chaos and disorder and the pain and the dysfunctionality of your life and bring order and structure and peace and joy and on top of all that, eternal life. There's nobody who has ever not wanted to hear that. There's nobody who's never wanted to hear that. I think it's safe to say that if Paul had been left on his own, he probably would have never gone so far off the main road to the little town of Berea. Yet it proved to be one of the most fortuitous stops of entire ministry, an, an unplanned blessing. I would say unplanned for Paul, but not for the Holy Spirit, because God always knows what he's doing. He knows what's the hearts of men, and he knew that in this off-the-road place, there were people who were open and receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a joy that must have been to Paul. Everywhere he had gone, he had nothing but conflict and people pushing back and arguing with him and talking over the top of him and accusing him and condemning him. And he comes into this small little burg, walks into the synagogue, sits down and begins to have conversation. And these people listen. They were so unlike those people in the large, urban, sophisticated areas. They were less self-possessed. Uh, they weren't as territorial and protective than the religious elites were in Thessalonica because one of the things we know is they were driven by envy. The very reason Christ was turned over, it says that Pilate knew that they had done it out of envy. They didn't harbor any of the kind of grand delusions that are often found amongst people who are sophisticated or urbane or just basically totally woke. They only had one concern about Paul's teaching, as the text says, they searched and examined the scriptures carefully to see if what Paul said was true. You see, a lot of people say they're after the truth. But most people are looking for a version of the truth that conforms to their opinions of what is true. And that's a perilous thing to do because sometimes hearing the truth is not comfortable. Well, and for many of us, hearing the truth can be extremely uncomfortable. But here's the bottom line, that these people seem to understand that if something is true, 
then it's also real and therefore it works in the real world. But if something is not true, no matter how much I believe it or want it to be true, then it also will not be real and it won't work in any world. And it's the very reason why Jesus cautioned. He says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I find that one of the most profound statements that I find any place in the gospel. If the light that is in you is darkness, then how profoundly deep is that darkness? If I'm committed down a path that's the wrong path, and I figure that if I just go down it faster and harder and more energetically, that somehow it will become on its own, its own path, the ultimate result is going to be at the very least disappointment, if not utter destruction. And yet we live in an age where people are doubling down on stupid things, things that are nonsensical, things that have no basis in any kind of measurable reality, and yet they're doubling down and they raise their voice and they shout you down and they cancel you and they do all of this because they want what they believe to be true to be true and they'll do anything to get it. Ben Shapiro was interviewing a young woman who was transgender and he asked her, he said, uh, <clears throat> how do you know that you're, you're, you're transgender? How do you know that you're a man trapped in a woman's body? And she said, well, because I feel it. He said, okay, I mean, you can become a guy just by feeling like you're a guy? Yes. He said, why don't you become 60? Can't you just will that you're 60 years of age? Well, no, I can't do that. In fact, I thought to myself, that's exactly what Jesus said. He says, you can't add one day to your life. You can't add one inch to your height. <laughs> you can't change the color of your eyes. We know that because the Nazis tried to do that to people. The whole point is that there are certain things that fix and we accept that they're fixed. We accept the fact that you can't leap off of tall buildings in a single bound and take flight. Well, I... Let me put it this way. I promise you that if you jump out of an airplane at 3,000 feet, you will not hurt. It will not be painful. It's the intersection between earth and your body at the end of those 3,000 feet that's going to be extremely painful. In fact, it may not be painful at all. It'll just mean the end of you immediately. Because we know that that fact of reality is that gravity always wins. That's why I'm getting two chins. Gravity is winning. <laughs> but sadly, truth is the first casualty of the ambitious. James noted that our drive to succeed can often give rise to a, a hidden sociopathic side of our personalities. You know what I mean by sociopathic. A sociopath is a person who has no empathy for anybody. All he concerns himself or she concerns himself is winning and power and control and influence. They, they just want to be on top and they, they don't really feel pain for other people. Some people say, well, it's extreme narcissism. It's the same thing. But you have delusions of grandeur that you have this wonderful person on one end and you feel no empathy for anybody else. All you can do is feel an incredible amount of empathy for your own self. And to say that's out of the reach of your personality and mine is to lie to ourselves because you and I can be incredibly narcissistic and incredibly even sociopathic sometimes if we aren't held in check by the Holy Spirit and by our wives. <laughs> but James put it very simply. He said, what, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You're, drive, you're driven by an internal desire to have what I want. You see, today we can, we can see it even in the noble claims of science. That sometimes science gets lost in the pursuit of personal advancement. Phrases like science says or scientific consensus agrees or follow the science have become nothing more than a verbal foil to mollify, mollify the skittish and the skeptical and to give power to those who are ambitious. I mean, for example, at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, the FDA 
the World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, the Journal of Medicine, and the Lancet all came out and said they cautioned against the use of hydroxychloroquine, calling it dangerous, which I thought was funny because every time I went to India, I took hydrochloroquine, (laughs) part of the regimen. Never felt anything. And this was despite the fact that in 2005, Fauci's own NIH had stated in writing, chloroquine is a potent inhibitor of SARS coronavirus infection and spread. See, the problem with hydroxychloroquine and and ivermectin as well, the problem with them is they're really cheap. They're inexpensive. In much of the world, you can buy them over the counter, which was the recommendation of many scientists at the beginning of the uh, epidemic. In fact, Mexico now gives packets of ivermectin and erythromycin. They pass them out, tens of thousands to people, as soon as they begin to have symptoms. They just give them to free because they found what it does is it tamps down the infection and keeps it from becoming worse. But the problem was that that would block big farmers' ability to make billions in profits with experimental drugs and still experimental vaccines. In fact, the New York Times of all publications said the Pfizer vaccine, which is the one Bill Gates recommended because the Gates Foundation has given millions to help develop the vaccination, the only part he didn't tell when he's saying this, recommending people to get the Pfizer vaccine on CNN was that he also is a major stockholder in Pfizer. The Pfizer vaccine brought in $3.5 billion in revenues in the first three months of this year. 25% of their total annual income came in in months just from this one drug. So there's a reason that they say, well, it's free. It's not free. We're paying for that, by the way. (laughs) Our tax dollars are funding that. It's not free. It's being paid for. But you see, what happens is you wonder, why is that conversation clamped down? Why can't we have open discussion? Why do people get blocked and banned and canceled from Facebook and Twitter and, and, and other places where people have different opinions? And the answer is really simple. It's financially inconvenient for those who stand to make billions and billions of dollars as a consequence. Whether it's effective or not, or whether it's dangerous or not, I'm not qualified to comment on that. Especially because if you want to hear other views, it's so hard to find them. The point is that every one of us likes to think of ourselves as noble. I mean, many of us fancy ourselves as being noble individuals, but truly, noble people are really few and and far between in our world. In scripture, the term is frequently used of individuals who are born into royal families. I mean, uh, in, the, in the Bible, we have kings and queens like Manasseh and Ahab and Jezebel who were nobles in the terms that they were royalty, but in reality, they were, there was nothing noble about them at all. They were, in fact, the term is ignoble the opposite of being noble. They were cruel, they were greedy, they were violent, they were dishonest, they were corrupt, they were wicked and evil. They were people who loved power far more than they loved God. And in most cases, the Bible uses the term noble not in the sense of somebody who has been lucky enough in the genetic uh, lottery to be born into a family that is royalty, but rather to people who display a character that is godlike. Because when it comes down to what it makes somebody noble, when you think about the King of Kings is our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are born of the Spirit, and we are called his brethren, we are going to reign with him as priests and kings. That's God's concept of nobility, that a noble life is one that's lived in imitation of Christ, and not in imitation of Prince Charles. See, in most cases, the Bible uses the term noble as a description of someone of exceptionally good character. For example, we read in in Ruth 3.11 about Boaz saying to Ruth, he says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. 
In Proverbs, Solomon wrote in chapter 12, he said, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. And then he adds in chapter 31, she is worth far more than rubies. You see, both these references are describing women who are selfless, who are moral, who are industrious, who are faithful. They're faith-filled, they're trustworthy, they're true. They're lovers of what is true. Yet because of universal human sinfulness, such people are rare, not only in the ancient world, but they're rare in our world today. That's why Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 20, he said, many claim to have unfailing love. I would say there's no more noble characteristic than to be a person of unfailing love. But a faithful person who can find Terms like noble or nobility as a consequence often get confused, kind of like the word great gets confused. I mean, history is filled literally with hundreds of people. Do it, just do a Google search like I did the other day, and I was saying, who has been called great? And it went on for pages and pages and pages. There were people who were great that I've never heard about. They probably would have ticked them off. But I thought of some of the ones that we all do know, people like Alexander the Great, who became great because he conquered large swaths of the world, leaving dead bodies and poverty and destruction in his path. Or Cyrus the Great, who destroyed the Babylonian Empire and raised up the Persian Empire, which oppressed most of the world for the next 200 years. There was Herod the Great, who was great in the sense that he was one of the most accomplished architects and builders of the ancient world, but he was mean and petty and cruel and selfish. You know, even the emperor, Augustus, said that I would rather be Herod's pig than his son because Herod killed three of his sons because he thought they threatened his kingship. But as a Jew, he wouldn't eat a pig, so it was safer to be a pig. How about Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor? Or Charles the Great, Charlemagne? the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, or Peter the Great of Russia. I mean, there's all these people who have great associated with their names. But if you know anything about these men's personal history, you also know that greatness is in the eyes of the beholder, or we might say it depends on which side of their sword you're on, the handle or the front. If you know them from the hasp, you're safe. If you know them from the tip, you weren't safe. I find it really interesting that <clears throat> Count Dracula, named Vlad the Impaler, it's an interesting guy. I mean, they call him Vlad the Impaler because one of the ways he discouraged the Turks from invading Europe is he, whenever he captured any of their men, he took a stake and he stuck it in their rectum and pushed it out through their neck and then stuck it in the ground and looked them standing there quivering as they died on the stake. They called him Vlad the Impaler. He would just line the hills and the roads with all of these guys so that it would kind of be psychological warfare when the Turks thought about coming and saying, you know, uh, do, we really need, do we really need Romania? Can we look for another country? In fact, he was believed by the Europeans to be the great deliverer of the European people from the invasion of the Ottoman Turks. So he's a hero today, even in Romania. He's a hero. But to the Turks, he is the vilest of creatures that has ever come on the earth. The same is true of great events. I mean, we talk about the Great War, World War II. There was nothing great about it. It was the most brutal, carnal destruction of mankind that the world had ever seen to that point. Or there was the Great Depression, which I don't think was great for anybody. Or how about the Great Recession we went through a few years ago? And then there's the Great Reset. Hmm. Uh, basically, the Great Reset is a way in which they can shift wealth and power from ordinary people like you and me and concentrate in the hands of a few totalitarian elites who know better how to manage your day-to-day -day life than you do. Yet as Jesus' disciples revealed, there's something within human nature that craves greatness. There's something about you and me that craves greatness. We, we want to feel like we've done something notable. We're, rarely would we ever say, well, I want to be known as the 
greatest pastor who's ever passed the church in the history of man and humanity and time. Maybe that's a little too conservative. You know, this idea that somehow operates in our minds that we have to be great. And what happens is when we turn around and find somebody who is better at doing what you do, then suddenly you resent them because they're better and their chance of becoming the great one is greater than your chance. Please don't pretend like you don't deal with this. We see his disciples dealt with it because they were obsessed with it, with great, being great, with the idea of power and wealth. In Matthew 18, they said, at that time, his disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I'm sure they were standing in row. Which one of us is the greatest, Jesus? You and I look at that and say, well, who would ask a question like that? Well, let me tell you. Peter, Paul, John, James, Daniel, Thaddeus. I mean, the whole crew of them. In fact, it wasn't just once that it happened. In Mark 9, 34, they're walking along and Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And he says, they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. I think to myself, are these third graders? <laughs> I'm greater than you are. Now I'm greater than you are. I was greater first. I'm greater most. I would be... <laughs> And yet they know that it's wrong. They're so aware that this shouldn't be their orientation, but somehow they just couldn't help from going there. In fact, in Luke 9, 46, after Jesus eats the last supper with disciples, it says they get into an argument over who is going to be the greatest. Jesus told them, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, <laughs> but by the way, on the third day I'm going to rise, and they're consumed the whole time like they didn't hear a thing Jesus was saying because they're sitting there saying, wait a minute, we came into the room and Peter, instead of being in the seat of honor, was put back here at the lowest seat at the end of the table and, and Judas is sitting in the seat of honor and, and he's a, the only Judean amongst us and, and he's been trusted with the money so he must be the one that Jesus sees as his successor and they're saying, Peter's job is open. And they go out of the Last Supper. I mean, I find this incomprehensible. The Greek word is philonikos. You know, we have Nike, the god of war, the god of conflict, the god of victory. And philo means a love of winning. Philonikos, a love of winning. They began to argue because they had a love for wanting to win and be great. When I was a kid, I watched football. And guys would run touchdowns. And then they would just simply hand the ball to the, to the referee and then they would uh, walk back to their position. And then somewhere in the 70s, that began to change and people started going, <laughs> and they developed all sorts of weird dances and stuff. You know, and <laughs> now, I grew up and I was told, stop being a show-off. That's bad character, bad behavior. Remember we were told, I remember in Little League, the coach would sit us all down when you're eight-year-old, you know, and you can't even really hit the ball or do anything. And he says, men, I always love that, men, <laughs> one thing we need to establish right from the very beginning, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. So we're going to play it fair. We were taught to call our own fouls. <laughs> and what's amazing to me now, you have the, Vince Lombardi philosophy, which came from somebody else, actually. He just repeated it. But the idea, it's not whether you win. It's, winning isn't the, isn't the only thing. It's everything. Do you see how culture shifts the points of view? I was boring my wife at length last night about recitation of the way different generations looked at the future through history. and I mean, she was just, <clears throat> she was just fascinated by it because it was so insightful. And I won't bore you with the details, right? But the thing that really struck me is that every generation looks at the future through a different lens, and with it comes a different set of expectations. But every generation always has the expectation that somehow my life will have greatness, and when we discover that it's not going to happen, we get depressed. And we don't realize that God has built into us that desire. 
He's built into us a craving for nobility. That's why he said, you will reign with me as kings and priests when I come into my kingdom. But then they missed the second part. But that's not here and now. That may not be evident here and now, but that is what I have created you for. That's what I've destined you for. And I want you to live now in your season of anonymity as the noble man or woman that I created you to be, the man of greatness, the woman of greatness that I've created you to be by simply completing the task of testifying to the gospel of grace in your life. This became clear how Jesus responded to their questions of greatness, and it reveals that their concept of being great was very far from God's. In Matthew 18, 4, he says, Who will be great? Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as a child is the greatest in the kingdom. He doesn't say that it becomes childish, but rather when it comes to seeing yourself, you're childlike. You know what I think, what I miss as I, I yearn for as I get older? When you get older, you see and hear so many things, you lose your sense of awe and wonder. Remember the, I remember the first time I got an airplane to fly over the ocean. It was a, both a terrifying and thrilling experience. And landing in a foreign culture and not speaking the language and having to negotiate, it was stressful and anxiety-filled, but at the same time, it felt significant, important. And I have to confess to you, the thrill is gone. <laughs> I don't know what happened except you get used to doing stuff and suddenly that shiny airplane becomes nothing else but a greyhound bus that flies Jesus said in Matthew 23 the greatest among you will be your servant it won't be the person who's looking for glory it's the one who's looking for God And when you find God, you find glory, but you find it's his glory, not your glory. Because as John the Baptist pointed out so clearly that I must decrease so that he may increase. As my old friend Stanley Volk used to say, you've discovered that the way up is first the way down. He said in Luke, he said, he who is least among you, he is the greatest. In a way, somebody put it to me really well one time. They said, being a Christian is really trying to win the race to the bottom. (laughs) To be the lowest, to be the youngest. He goes on to say, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, the one who rules, like the one who serves. None of these things communicated greatness to them. Because in God's eyes, greatness is an attitude that manifests itself in a totally uncommon way. It manifests itself in humility. It manifests itself in serving and self-sacrifice and taking the lowest seat and not demanding to have the best seat. Or as someone once put it, it's downward mobility, not upward mobility. Maybe it's captured best by Paul when he said to the Philippians in Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. You know that you're beginning to experience humility when you see somebody promoted above you and you feel honest, sincere joy and thankfulness for their success. And you know you have a ways to go when you became angry and jealous and resentful. Notably, the Bereans were the only group in the New Testament that were ever described as being noble. And they demonstrated by their fairness, their objectivity, their calm deliberation, simply because they desired more than anything else to be on the side of truth. But oftentimes, truth and being on the side of truth can be very costly. Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna, was a disciple of the Apostle John. And at the age of 86 years, the the governor of Smyrna arrested him as a bishop of the church there 
And he told them if he recanted Christianity, that his life would be spared. He said, why should you die burning at a stake when you can die sleeping in your own bed at home? And Polycarp looked at him with an amazing calmness where he said, 86 years I've served him and he has never done me injury. How then can I now blaspheme my king and my savior? And they took him out, tied him to a stake, laid woods and sticks all around his feet, set it afire and watched him burn to death. And those who wrote of it said, he stood there the whole time, never crying out in pain, but with his hands lifted to heaven. As the fires rose, it froze him in place. Or I even think much later, Martin Luther, who is, a, is basically called up on charges by Charles V, the king of the Holy Roman Empire, surrounded by his princes and lords and all of the prelates of the Roman Catholic Church who were demanding that Luther recant his teaching that the Bible was the only authority that men are obligated to submit to instead of the Pope. His response in part was simply this. My conscience is captive to the word of God alone. I love that phrase. My conscience is captive to the word of God alone. Here I stand, I can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. And in those words, he knew very well that he was signing his own death certificate and he might, might have been if not the Prince Frederick hadn't actually kidnapped him and hid him away for a year in one of his castles. A year that he spent as a prisoner there for his own safety, which also was a year in which he spent translating the Latin Bible into the German vernacular of the day and one of the first common language translations in Europe. These were truly notable moments in the lives of these individuals. But noble moments do not, in fact, make somebody noble. You don't suddenly live an unnoble life and then all of a sudden become noble at the right moment. A great book by Eugene Peterson that I would recommend anybody read, just a great, just a great book, but he has the title of it is an amazing statement. He says, basically the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. People who live nobly don't just simply stumble upon it or suddenly have this reversal in the last moment. They rather are people who have committed to the biblical definition of living a noble life. In fact, one writer who's unfamiliar to me, so I don't reference him because I couldn't find any background information on him. You know, when you read a lot, you find there are some things you agree with, but you really disagree with the mouth that it's coming out of. So, leave it at that. I don't know who he is. But I loved what he wrote. He wrote the following. He says, a noble man is not a man who does one or two good things in his life and then rests on his laurels the rest of the way. For a man to truly live a noble life and be a noble person, he must leave his mark on humanity in small, consistent ways that demonstrate and define his character over time. He must be selfless, Stand up consistently for what's good and right, even when it is unseen or unpopular. And never yield his integrity to what's convenient or common. A noble man doesn't pardon his poor behavior. He's quick to apologize. A noble man is not perfect and he makes regular mistakes, which he strives to learn from. Being a noble man is more than an act. It is a rewriting of our thoughts and actions. 
It's a new way of thinking, refining our behaviors and perceiving the world around us. Being a noble man is a lot of work and it can be intimidating, but the world needs noble men. Your circle of influence needs noble men. Your family needs noble men. Humanity needs noble men. Become a noble man and never stop becoming. The point is that nobility is cultivated over a long time on a daily basis. And it often means going down the path least traveled. But Paul told the Philippians there are certain milestones on that road, that highway, when you go down it. When he said in Philippians 4, 8, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true. In other words, we seek to know what's true. Whatever is noble. Whatever we do that we don't have to apologize for. But we do, he says, whatever is right. Whatever is pure. Whatever is lovely. Whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What he's describing is what we refer to as the way of the cross. Jesus put it more succinctly when he said in Matthew 16, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Mark, do you guys have that video I gave you the other day? Okay. I gave it to him last week and I changed my mind because this is Father's Day. I'll just give you a little brief preview of the short video I'm going to show. It's the guy who's speaking here is a man named uh, John Lennox. John is a... Uh, uh, a professor at Cambridge in mathematics. He's also uh, a philosopher and a theologian and a Christian apologist. He's one of those Renaissance men who's extremely well-educated, extremely well-known, gave his life to Christ when he was a student at Oxford University, uh, grew up in those early days with men like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and others. But basically, he's asked a question as he's speaking at the C.S. Lewis Institute on what he would say to people who um, really kind of thinking about the end of their life. Where are you going to be when it's, it's all done? So if that's enough uh, time, if you can go ahead and march that, guys. Um, John, it's been wonderful having you. I, I, uh, I know that you have um, uh, three, uh, uh, three children and with the 9.8 uh, grandchildren. And uh, so if you were to leave uh, final words of wisdom for them, if you had to, uh, one or two or three things that you would want to leave uh, as words of wisdom to them, what would they be? It's kind of a way to wrap up our, our evening. Not only to my children, but to anybody. Our lives rush past. We've become fixated on digital equipment that's robbing us of time. Uh, people say to me they've no time. They've loads of time. If you want to know how much time you've got, just ask yourself a simple question. How much time have I spent in the last week fiddling with a piece of digital equipment and doing things that have no relevance whatsoever to my profession or my life? And then say, have I got any time? We're robbing ourselves of the most important thing in life if we're Christians, and that is seeking fellowship with God through his word. You will never make any impact on this world by reading the Bible for five minutes before you jump into bed. And I'm brutally practical. You husbands will never make any impact on the world if you're not praying with your wives and leading your families spiritually. You just won't. It's not possible to develop a deep 
relationship within a family that is not triangular. That is, it doesn't include Jesus Christ at one corner. And we can seek to repent of these things and really begin to make time so that in that sense we get to know God. I used to think that science and all of these arguments were much more interesting than the Bible. And I discussed it with my mentor, David Gooding, and he said, would you like to do a Bible study? And he invited me to do one. One night transformed my life, completely in Cambridge, where I, for the very first time, I met a person that took Scripture seriously and just stood with it. We put it up in reversed wallpaper, pinned up to a wall, and he entered a, a dialogue with Matthew, and it was just mind-blowing how he began to open the treasures of Scripture. But it takes input and work. Many of you people are professional. Think of the work you had to do to get to where you are. Now, if God has given you that kind of mind, how much of it are you using on him? And what worries me, silly, is people who rise in their professional career like that, but their knowledge of Scripture remains on a basic baby Sunday school level. So the moment their peers raise any questions, they instantly detect they've not thought it through. And that silences them, often forever, sadly. So it's, it's a clarion call, and I very much admire what Joel and his colleagues are doing. And I think it is a way of pushing against this tide of mediocrity where we don't take God's word seriously. So what that tells me when I find it in my own heart is I don't really love God. All this talk about going to heaven and going to meet with Christ, if that happened to you now, what would you say to him? What would you talk about? It is very serious stuff. C.S. Lewis says all the leaves of the New Testament rustle with an expectation of eternity. And if we've never sensed that, the word of God is given to us to make eternal things real. And we need to spend time immersed in it, perfectly reading it with other people and alone. I had a very close friend at Cambridge. And years ago, we agreed that whoever died first, the other remaining person would preach at the funeral. He thought I would die first because I was quite a bit older. But I never forget the day when he called me and with tears in his eyes, he said, I've got a tumor as big as a grapefruit in here. And that's going to be it you'll have to take my funeral. I said to him, what shall I say? Without hesitation, he said this. He said, tell them to do what we did as students in Cambridge, to pour over the word of God prayerfully and wait on God until his face appears. And he added then, he said, and then they will have something to say. Do you want something to say? Your pastor, teacher, Sunday school. If you want something to say, there is no shortcut. And I'll never forget those essentially last words to the world, and I've repeated them many times. That was what transformed me. It wasn't reading all the philosophy in the world, although I love it and find it interesting. And it's a way of building bridges and dealing with difficulties. But in the end, unless God is real through his word, we're, we're missing the central fellowship that he offers us. So thank you very much and God bless you all. can't tell you how many times I've viewed that and every time it impacts me the same way but to his point essentially he's saying if you want to live a great life you want to live a life that is great in the eyes of God 
Let it be one that has been focused upon knowing his word so well and seeing him so clearly in it that you begin to speak to his generation. I've talked to many people over the years saying, well, I just don't get anything when I read the Bible. <laughs> it used to puzzle me. But I also found as I queried closer that they really didn't spend hardly any time in the Word. They approached it as a discipline, an activity. I want to say particularly to you men, if you want to have your wife respect you and honor you, then do it by being the spiritual leader of your home. That you're the one who leads in prayer. You're the one who leads in the word of God. You can't fake it. You can't do it if it's not real, it's not sincere. And so for some of you, that's where you need to start. Why is it not real and why is it not sincere? Why is it something that I can so easily leave out of my daily life? Why is that? Because if you ask God that question, he will give you the answer and I'm afraid to tell you it's not gonna be a pretty thing to look at. You're gonna see that there's something else that you love more than God. There's an idol that you worship in your heart. So that when your children have issues with life, you can say, well, let me share you what scripture says. Instead of flipping off some opinion that's based upon the limited perspectives of you have your life in this world. We live in a generation where young people question the reliability, the truthfulness, the dependability, the goodness, the, the sacredness of Scripture. And I figured out years ago it's not because we haven't done our apologetic homework of proving to them the reliability of the text and all that kind of stuff that used to consume my thought life. I thought the reason they asked that question is because they don't see it being lived in their parents' life. They see their parents saying, we're Christians, but they never see you on your face before God. They, they never see you crying out to God. They never see you reading the word. No, we may say, I went to this thing, I felt so guilty. We're going to start having devotions now. So everybody get in here and we're going to have devotions. And, and your kids just go, oh my goodness, here we go through another thing. Can I just go cut the grass? Well, yeah, that's probably okay. No, it's when they see that reality in you that it's, it's real. I spoke at a pastor's conference years ago and, and, they, <laughs> and I had brought my, my asked to have my older son come with me because we were going, they wanted us to talk about the sons of pastors and they wanted to know why is it so many sons of pastors and daughters of pastors want nothing to do with the church? And so this would be interesting. So I thought, well, I know what my son's gonna say, what the things that impressed him. And I was kind of shocked when he got up and shared why he decided to follow Jesus and why he decided to be a pastor. It was none of the brilliant things I had said or done. In fact, he cited certain things that I didn't even remember. Things that I never noticed because they were just the way I did life. But what hit me the most, he said, I just remember walking by my dad's study and seeing him on his face before God. I saw him laboring in the word of God. He said, we'd have people ask me when I was growing up in the church, what's your dad like at home? And he said, it was such a strange question because he said, oh, I would just say, well, he's dad. What you see here is what you see there. I'm sorry, but that's just the reality. It becomes this thing that we don't realize the impression that we're communicating to our kids, to our grandkids, and in some of our cases, our great-grandkids. But they're watching, they're observing, they're noting. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, a great spirit of God, of the great God living inside of you who has ordained that you be able to do something great. But it won't happen if the things that are the foundations of our faith, like the word of prayer, the word and prayer, 
going to church, taking our kids to church. All those things become part of it. The music we listen to in our homes and in our cars and, and the things we talk about over the table. If those things don't reflect a view of God as being great, then your kids will never, never make that connection. They'll become that second generation of believers saying, oh yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. Whatever that means, I'm a Christian. And by the third generation, their, their kids will look at them and saying, so why are you a Christian? My wife and I were listening to music last night. And uh, we do that. We sit on our deck and listen to music. And I got onto a Bob Dylan jag during his Christian period. Well, he's a Christian. I think he's still a believer now because he's actually had a number of Christian songs he's written. But it was one of his biggest hits that he got, basically got a Grammy for was you got to serve somebody. It may be the Lord, it may be the devil, but you got to serve somebody. Remember that song? Great song, great message. I did realize that after he had released that song that John Lennon wrote a song called Serve Yourself. And the entire song is a mockery of that whole statement. You got to serve yourself because nobody else is going to serve you. One month later, he was shot dead. And I said, is there a connection? I don't know. But he made it his mission to blaspheme the God of the Bible and Christianity and Dylan's faith. And the Bible says, don't be over much wicked lest you perish before your time. There's a great deal going on in your life that you don't even see. It's mystical, it's spiritual, it's divine. And God, by his spirit, is yearning over your soul and saying, will you take me seriously? Will you take my word seriously? Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts by your Holy Spirit in a way that is relentless, that despite whether we have given up on you, that we know that you never give up on us. That you never come to a point when you look at us and say, well, they're too old now or they're too weak or too late. But that God, that for Polycarp, the greatest moment in his entire ministry was when he was 86 and tied to a stake and burned to death. I pray, Lord, that we would never discount ourselves or ask as if we're, act as if there's no greatness in our future because we, we define greatness the way the world does. I pray, God, that you would just stir in us that we have the creator of the universe living inside of us, yearning to express himself through us. If we'll just spend the time letting him speak to us. Give us that grace, Father.